Well, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the 90 or Nothing podcast show. Today's episode is number eight. We hope you've been enjoying the last few weeks. We've certainly enjoyed delivering them. But first, a bit of sad news, I guess. Highbrow Cat, a very influential sire in the cutting horse industry, passed away earlier this week. And it's very sad as he was one of the most influential sires in the cutting horse industry, earning himself $80 million as a sire, which is just massive. So big shout out to Highbrow Cat, you're a huge influence. Also, our thoughts go out to everyone affected by the fires in the previous week. We hope everyone's doing okay and staying safe as these are terrible times and it's just dreadful to go through it. So we hope everyone stays safe and looks after each other and their animals. But for today's episode, I managed to catch up with Link Bowman. Now, Link is from Werris Creek, which is just south of Tamworth. And by day, Link is a professional farrier at the Equine Podiatry and Lameness Centre in Musselbrook and is certainly one of the best in this country and internationally recognised. But by night time, Link goes home and trains cutting horses professionally. And I might add, does a very outstanding job of that. Link has been very influential throughout my life and I really appreciated sitting down with him this morning and catching up with him. Guys, this episode is brought to you and all made possible by our great friends Camp Draft Training Online and Cinch Australia. I started off by asking him where he grew up. We hope you enjoy. Well, I grew up and was born in Queensland in a town called Gympie and then uh, we had uh, family property there at Kalulban. We've been there three generations and so it was just on the Blackall Ranges west of Yandina on the Sunshine Coast there. So it was the same range line as Montfort, Mullaney, all that. Yep. So it was heavily timbered country, scrub country. So yeah, we had a, a grandfather opened a block up there and in the early 20s and um yeah so we've been there most of my life yeah how big would it have been oh it was like 200 acres but that sort of country 200 acres and that steep uh hilly country was sort of real heavy scrub you know you could run quite a few cattle and horses but he had big banana plantations there so yeah right back in the 30s and um we grew a lot of bananas and pineapples and that sort of stuff yeah yeah, that would have been definitely a different upbringing for you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and what what um what else what else happened up there? Well, obviously, grandfather was into was a timber cutter, and because right. he he had fourteen me him and grandmother, he had fourteen children, and there was seven boys and seven girls, and so most of the boys were either timber cutters or cane cutters back in them days, and so it was a fairly there was a lot of sawmills and sleeper mills and up in that part of the yeah. landscape, so there was plenty to do. And he started out with bullocks, cut uh, snigging timber with bullocks, and then eventually got into heavy horses. And um, yeah, so that's where the horse influence come from. Yeah, well, I was going to say because obviously this is time before machinery, so um, yeah, yeah the animals would have come played a fair big part in that. I yeah. Guess. yeah, yeah. So I mean, it was it was an everyday thing with the bullocks and I still remember all the yokes when he'd when he'd finished with the bullocks all underneath the mango tree you'd see him every day as a kid there yeah and sort of didn't take much notice of it but now that you think about it, it would have been unbelievable to have all that stuff restored and kept and yeah but um and then then there was a part where there was the shed was full of harness from the heavy horses as well but we worked right we worked heavy horses right up until I was about 13, 14. And then then that time the four-wheel drive tractors come in, so right. the old man started to get tractors and and we were able to work that steep country with four-wheel drive tractors. But, yeah, we worked uh, heavy horses right up until I was in my teens. Really? Yeah. yeah. Wow, that's amazing. So, yeah. so you schooled up there? Yeah, I used to travel eight mile into town, um on a school bus and I remember quite well that when we had the wet seasons up there because we used to get about 120 inches of rainfall 
sometimes we'd have to drive the tractor, yeah. the old two-wheel drive tractor, to where the road was good enough for the school bus to um, go to school. I'd have a heap of kids on the carryall, and and I even remember in my later years um, driving the school bus for the we used to put <laughs> bog chains on the school bus and have to drive it for the. We had an old lady called Mrs. Tigle. She got a bit nervous driving when it was real slippery, so I'd drive the school bus with all the kids on it, but oh, wow. that was a bit of fun back in them days. So how many brothers or sisters do you have? i got uh, two sisters and a younger brother, yeah. Yeah, right. Are they in the horse industry at all? Uh, my sister, uh, her and her husband, uh, they're up at Mundubra. They've um, they've always stayed into the horses, but the other ones, no. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So you're just carrying the flag pretty well then? Yeah, that's it. Yeah, that's the go. So then, so where'd you go from there after that, after you finished school? Well, I finished school and was working just on the place there. And we had a dairy farm further up near in the Mary Valley. And then we always had, um, in the early 70s, um, the old man got into quarter horses and we went really big into sprint racing because back in them days, um, Russ Hins was racing minister in Queensland and he allowed right. the quarter horses to race on the thoroughbred tracks. Okay. So they all them horses were registered non-stud book back then, and so we used to race at Toowoomba and Gympie, Bundaberg, Nanango. There's even some 800 metre races, horses back in the day race at the Gold Coast. Then they had the fatur- big futurity, quarter mile futurity at Toowoomba for years, and yeah, so it, we um, we used to work on the farm and plus do that, and and then. After a while, back when I was 17, I shifted to Mount Isa and worked in the mines up there for a couple of years and done a bit of ringing and all that sort of stuff as you do as a young fella. Yeah, right, right. Mm. And then you sort of moved on into a trade for... About yeah, a well, I started shoeing when I was about 14. We used to have a farrier called Tom Affleck come to home and shoe the sprint horses and used to help him pull shoes off and clinch up. And I remember one time, that we, you know, obviously back them days had no phones and that, but... He never showed up and I don't know, something happened and I'd pull the shoes off the horse and we had three runners and I ended up plating them up myself and then just kept shoeing. But it was really hard to get apprenticeship then because there was no sort of apprenticeship scheme going on. Right. So I just went to a few shoeing schools, shot our own and plus we had show horses as well and um, used to keep them all shod myself and, and, um, and just sort of, tinkered along like that until years later when I moved down into New South Wales back in the 80s and then... Where did you move to there? I uh, come to Orange first when Chris and I first got ma- married and then and then I was shooing around there and it was only a summertime job because so cold in the winter at Orange that a lot of horses didn't do much in right. the winter. Yeah. And then um, worked on a few properties and shod, shod of an afternoon, weekends and... And then eventually went to New Haven Park at um, Borua. Right. Shod for them and worked for old J.W. Kelly at Suffolk Vale there, where young Tom's place is. Yeah. And then we had a couple of stallions there. We had Keen and Imperial Baron and a few other stallions there. And then used to do the bit of foal work, put some extensions on foals for New Haven and Red Hill. That was Fred's yearling place and... And then eventually um, went to the Gold Coast sales in the 80s and with them and ended up running into Spook Neville, Billy Neville, and yeah, and started coming up working with them a bit and ended up eventually moving up and in the, um, like 89, 90. Yeah. Um, and, and working for Valley Farriers full time. Right. So what was it about... Sh- why did you love shoeing so much? Why? What was your passion there? Oh, it just it just felt right each time, and I give it away quite a few times, obviously. And yeah. even when I was working at Mount Isa as a seventeen-year-old in the mines, uh, find yourself chewing of a weekend, right? Yeah, going out on the stations, and they say, "Oh, I need to get something shod," and you pick your hand up, and there was just something about it. It was just it was sort of one of the things you can never master, but you can. Um, it's always got a challenge in front of it, so yeah, it's a bit like training horses it's never-ending learning curve and yeah so, so things like that really interest me so yeah yeah so when did you do you reckon once you start working for spook you really start to delve into 
you know, the deeper bits of it and really work it out a bit more. Yeah, and when, especially in back in them days, the top end of the market was the thoroughbred game, so, you know, they'd let you, they'd let you had the money to go ahead and do what you had to do to fix problems and and how it's evolved now that the performance side of things has probably overtaken the thoroughbred game a bit as far as people spending money on performance horses because such a big investment now, you know? Yeah. And um, I noticed that with the Lameness Centre that, you know, we um, get more of a chance to do stuff on performance-based horses than, than the thoroughbred game. I mean, the thoroughbred game will give you a couple of opportunities and uh, if you yeah. don't get a result, they move on because it's a numbers game where... Yeah, right. In the performance side of things, people invest into them performance horses, they want to see the end result, you know? Yeah, okay. So what would be the some of the main or bigger problems you see um, come in for the podiatry centre? Probably the biggest thing we see is uh, mechanical issues, the way horses are set up. And, and you know, in, in defence of other vets and farriers, it's just that um, that we've got so advanced with our... With our um, show program that people are on them 365 days a year now and yeah and they're true athletes now so um the horses have got to be you know set up a lot better and once they come in you can get us some x-rays and find out where the issues are and and we educate some of the owners and even educate some of our far- other farriers right. which their school levels are quite high but it's just that um you know these horses are getting such a big workload that we've got to um you know change our shoeing style or different shoes or yep. shoot shoe to adapt um to the conditions that they were working in you know yeah yeah, yeah. so i know you, you've been very humble before and saying you can't master it but uh me knowing you i know that you've you know done a very good job with everyone i know of and um what did it sort of take to get that information like where where have you got it from how long has it taken well it's taken well actually the first horse i shot was probably 43 years ago but the last <laughs> the last 20 something years has been probably because you you work you you got to do the numbers for a start to be able to start to um at least see what you're looking for and and even though you go and get help, you've got to stay to the middle of the road type of thing. You can't be too left or too right. So in yep. um, some of the people you go and work with overseas can be radical or conservative. But, you, you know, I reckon the best leveller is when you know you're on, on the right track is when the horses are walking out sound. Yeah. You know, we could say, I'm going to show them this certain way because I went went and worked with this fellow and he does everything this way, that's fair enough. But you can't, at the end of the day, the horses have got to be sound. So mm. it comes back to being, you know, true true to the horse's anatomy and, and the mechanics of the horse and usually the old saying, no foot, no horse, that's usually the, the correct um, outcome of the whole thing. But... I mean, you've got to you've got to go abroad, and um, there's some one thing I do know that sometimes you think you've got to go outside Australia to find find um, you know information. But I realise now that there's some fellas over here who are world leaders in their yeah in their um, field. So you know you just got to do your research and yeah see who's got good results and and make sure that. Um, you know, you got to stay true to yourself, but you know, you take a little idea from there and I something from somebody else, and yep. and make it fit. And plus, it's still got to work in your business plan. You can't yeah okay. go and completely change things and shoe like they do in Europe or America when it doesn't suit our conditions out here. So, got to be mindful of that. Right, right. So, you you did mention you went overseas. Where did you go overseas? I spent a lot of time in the U.S. and. And um, obviously in Kentucky and Texas, and spent spent a bit of time and caught up with some farriers in Canada, and yeah, um, and then when a lot of European, as far as England, Scotland, and Irish farriers clinicians come out here, hooked up with them, and right, but um, just got to be careful that um, you know, 
Australia is such a vast, dry and harsh country that you still got to shoot air conditions. Yeah. And what kind of horses were you shooing overseas? Um, in Kentucky, obviously, mostly thoroughbreds and hunter jumpers. And then yeah. in Texas, obviously, got to shoe a lot of rainers. And in the early days, I'd done a lot of rainers and, um, and cutting horses and Western pleasure horses. Right, right. Mm. Now, you mentioned cutting and you're um, right into your cutting here. Um, where did that all come from? Oh, it probably originated back in, in the 90s when, um, obviously, uh, started when Billy, when I was shooing for Billy, we used to do a trainer shoeing um, Craig Abernett at a Lewin there just out of Musselbrook. Yeah. And uh, he had a big uh, operation there, had a couple of stallions, a new player and lethal leaner and horse called spin-off yeah um so we used to go there and and start and and back in the early days used to muck around with a, a bloke called john howe around in southeast queensland right. um done some small time cutting with him and sent some horses with him and um used to shoe with him and help him ride a few breakers and so it was always there and was connected with um, Marty Callagher at um, the Cow Pastures was a place there when Peppy Dockbar first come to the country. Right. So had that connection all the way through and then obviously because we were in the sprint horses it was on the side. But um, when Chris and I first got married she had a, she had a cutting horse and, and one of my old sprint bred horses I sent cutting it was quite good and Dodge Lamey had him. Yeah, right. And... Um, so it was always there, and then when we moved to the Hunter Valley and was shooting for Craig, and it just grew from there, shod for Craig, and then I'd, while I was still working for Billy of a weekend, I'd shoe for Todd up in Queensland and right. Todd Graham, and then when I left Billy, it went on to Johnny Mitchell, Roger Wagner, Sean Flynn. So end up shooing 80% was cutters at the Futurities them days, and then... Uh, shot a lot of pleasure horses for Wayne Judge and Rainers for Rodney Peachy and so it was a it was a kind of big part of our life and business and then yeah and used to watch them work them and relate to what the horses were doing how we shot them and right and then um, eventually just got a horse on my own and trained it myself and yeah and just went from there. What was it? It was something. Um, it was by a Freckles Boy cult that Billy Neville had out there out of one of his old cutting mares and it was an accident and and it was sort of he didn't didn't know what to do with it, so he um he gave it to me and I broke it in and started it and showed it and then ended up selling it and then done that one and went to the next one and just set, sort of kept going on. Yeah. So what what uh, draws you to cutting horses so much? Why do you why do you like it so much? Um, I think you know, shooing them and watching them, they were so athletic and intelligent. And and then um, I know after I trained that one, first one, we end up buying a, a mare off of Craig Emerton, a Darwin Dock mare, and that's where our baseline started with our brood mare. And then I seen a horse called um, Doc's Argyle Show. Yeah. Probably one of the best horses I've ever seen. Like even in the States and Australia, like when you see him show... You know, usually when a good cutting horse is going, people are yelling out, screaming and whistling. But when they, when he used to show, people would go quiet because he had that aura about him. Really? And um, Where did you first see him? I'd just seen him up in Tamworth. Yeah. At one of the futurities. And and, um, and that, I just thought once I'd seen that, I needed to, wouldn't mind breeding some and riding some. And then it just grew from there. Yeah. So... What are some of the things you can do with their um, feet to make them perform better? Like, I know that's broad, but... Yeah, well, back, like, I mean, a shoeing is just like it's a training aid shoe, and a, a lot of horses, what I really, um, I remember, like, so Argyle, I was having trouble with him. He was such a big stopping horse. He'd, hind feet had come up past his front, and he used to get bogged and miss his turnarounds because the cow had gone, and... Yeah. So we used to be able to put a square toe on a trailer and spread him a bit more so when you spread a horse's hinds they can get stopped quicker and had a bigger base to turn on. And 
So little things like that used to help him. And, and once he got secure in his own physical being, yeah, I mean, we could just shot him in a normal shoe. But um, And them sort of horses would have trouble like that. The shoeing, you change it just to help in that period of time of their training. And most horses, once they become secure in their in their footing and, and as their training goes on, they can handle it. They, I mean, you can go back to more normal. Yeah. But a lot, lot of mine at home now are barefoot because yep. a lot of the horses that we ride today are that well balanced and right. genetically bred and built for the job. So, yeah. you know, but if there's horses, you know, what um, need spreading, put a wider base or, you know, if they need some help, you can do whatever, you know. Right. I mean, there's a lot of horses I shoe still cutters and some of my own would have had issues as far as at a colt a few years ago, it was a big stopping horse. He was out of an Argyle mare. He had a, some few suspensory issues behind because he was such a big stopper. I just had to put some shoes on him with trailers on just to help him give him a bit more support, and then he was right. Right. Well, he ended up as an aged horse barefoot. So Right. Yeah. So you can, yeah, big change. Yeah, yeah. So the quarter horse early on had a pretty, oh, a little bit of a name for those small, short feet. And sort of boxy feet. How have they changed? Do you reckon over the time? Yeah, well, it's it's certainly. I mean, it's funny how um, you see, especially spending a lot of time in Texas, and you see a lot of horses with small boxy feet. But them horses live in constantly in barns and never get out in the paddocks. And but them same genetics out here, because our horses don't live in the barns like they traditionally do in the states because of seasonal weather and that right you'll see a lot heavier boned and heavier footed horses out here and right with the same genetics so i mean not not all the time it's genetics a lot of times it can be um the conditions they live in and work in too yeah, yeah. okay i didn't realize that yeah right yeah. so um more back into the cutting side of things um when did you start really having a bit of success as a non-pro Oh, probably, um, probably the mid two thousands. I had had a mare, a Lethalina mare called Isa Blue. Yeah. Um, she was really good. Uh, had a very successful for her. Um, and then I had a, another Argyle mare, um, called Doxlights Out. Um, which a um, mate of mine and we um. We shared her, uh, she was an Argyle mare and was really successful with them two mares and that's what sort of set a decent baseline. Yeah. And then both them mares are bred on and I've had good success out of both, they're both their foals. Right. Yeah. So as a non-pro, who did you go and look for help with? Who did you train with? Well, uh, back in the early days, I was always, like I physically spent most of my time with Sean Flynn. Yeah. But Todd was a big influence, Roger Wagner, and especially Craig Emerton too. Right. But I was kind of lucky because I shod for them all. Yeah. So you were there like a couple of days a month at each place. So. Right. And then obviously Johnny Mitchell and and then, you know, sort of grew up with helping Mouse a lot. Um, right. He's really been a good mate because he's, you know, helped, he's helped out like myself and heaps of young fellas and Obviously, I've done a lot of shoeing cripples for Mouse, but yeah, he, he's been a big influence. But main, mainly Craig, Todd, and, and probably mostly Sean. Yeah, okay. Yeah. I know we had um, Mark Buttsworth on here a few weeks ago, and he was saying the same thing whenever he got to go and chiropract for Todd or someone. He'd get there a little bit early just to try and maybe work a few more horses or something yeah, like that. Yeah. So I'm guessing it's a similar sort of situation. Yeah. Would it be? Yeah. Yeah, and the thing is with them fellas, it was always um, come and watch this one work, he's doing this or do that, and you'd watch him work and yeah. you'd change, tweak a few things on the shoeons and, and, um, but um, working shoeon for Todd, it was, was pretty easy, like shoeon for him because he was the main Doc Spinifex man. Right. So a lot of them were that good of horses. Yeah. They were pretty basic, but, um, and then, because and, Roger was really good too, Wagner in the later days. Yeah. Um, 
because he he just before he won the Futurity and Dreams of Oak and that she's a dream sorry um you know he just said one day what do you got to do to beat Todd and I said well you, you know obviously you can train a horse good and but you need all them little one percenters to line up too like good shoeing good dentist good vet yeah good chiropractor and and he went on his way and done all that Roger and and the result was he you know he won a couple of futurities and he won the futurity in the derby with that one mare yeah and then you know went on to the move to the states and be very successful but yeah it's just about it's the little things that count in that business like you all gotta it's all got to come together obviously but but you got to do everything you know yeah you can because you you got them on such a fine line at futurity time yeah Hey guys, we hope you're enjoying this interview, but just a quick word from our major sponsor, Camp Draft Training Online. Are you guys sick of sitting on the fence and watching the finals and just wishing you were in there? Well, be sure to head over to www.teamcto.com.au and check out all the latest tips and hints from some of Australia's top Camp Draft trainers and competitors. These guys will make the difference. So you mentioned um, people like Sean Flynn, uh, Johnny Mitchell, and and Roger Wagner, and they've well, Roger's back here, but um, the other two are back in the states. Why do you think they've gone over there? What's what's uh, the attraction over there? Maybe because it's like it, the industry's a lot bigger, obviously, over there, and and um, you know it's um, there's a lot more money, a lot more money over there, but. In, in saying that, I mean, they you go over there and spend some time with. They work hard and and um, it's a it's a dog eat dog world over there as far as that goes. But right, um, and you know the cutting industries fell on hard times over there at the minute since the recession and yeah. and so it it has here. But at least he, out here, I mean, I know it's not the money and um, they've got out here like back in the states but we've got a great another industry side beside cutting out here we've got drafting and yeah and i know one thing as far as in the early days when i looked at about moving over there to shoe at a lameness center over there it was kind of it was sort of overwhelming to think you could go over there and shoe but you know i kind of worked out really quick that it's a lot better lifestyle out here and and then even if you are in the horse business over there, Australia's unique because we've got another great cow horse industry beside us yeah. in camp drafting that that we can run parallel to each other's as far as we use the same genetics and well, most people can swap over from one to the other and Yeah, yeah. And I, I just think, you know, going over there you you sort of get entrenched in that one deal and Yeah. We're here there's still great opportunity you know yeah okay so you've spent a bit of time over there what are some of the differences in the horses compared to over here well they one thing i noticed over there they their horses are probably a little more in the early part uh they spend a lot more time on their twos and have their threes a lot more solid right but their their rate of breaking them down is horrendous as far as that just keep them at that level where they're at they've got to fairly give it to them yeah where and another thing too over there they they're um if they got horses what they're not happy with they shift them on right where the australians will make it makes make them lesser horses into something right because we haven't got the volume of two-year-olds or cutting horses or okay and even if they don't make it, they they transfer across into them challenge horses or drafters, and yeah. there's not a big wastage like they have over there. Right. Um, but at the end of the day, they're still riding the same genetics as us. Just and the the, the blokes have still got blood and oxygen running through their veins. Yeah, yeah. And 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 they're working cows like us, just at the top ten percent. There's more of them, yeah. But the top ten percent is still the same. Yeah, right. This is the top ten percent over there, but there's just more volume. Yeah. So there's still a, there's still good horses here, and there's still good horses over there. And you know, I've been over there, and 
at Sean's place and rode plenty of, you know, young horses poking about, helping him out, and and they just ride the same as the young horses here. <laughs> I know, because a lot of people in Australia sometimes think, oh, it's always bigger and better in the States, but yeah. it's um, it's just a good leveller to hear, I guess, yeah. that, you know, yeah. they do still get up the same way as we do. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. yeah. And then, you know, people say, why, like, Sean, Johnny and Roger... And, you know, there's been a few other Australians go there quite successful, is that, you know, they've ridden, they've had to make horses into something out here. Yeah. Like average horses. They've made them into show horses and been successful on them. So when they go over there and have that work ethic and they get some good horses, that's why they've rose to the top. Yeah. They're just not trained as a pretty good horseman as well. Yeah. Yeah. So at the end of the day, don't matter what horse you got, you still got to make it into something. Yeah. So even if the horse is only a 71, if you train it out, it's still going to be have a purpose and have a job. Yeah. So And somebody's going to enjoy it. So we all can't train Best. horses that run 75s every day. So mm. Mm. it's amazing how them, sometimes them lesser horses, because they're consistent and have got the will to cut a cow, can be still like a viable horse to have in the show string yeah definitely so uh you guys are now Warris creek new south wales you guys have a pretty strong brand of broodmares and um and have a pretty solid breeding program with your stallions that you're selecting are they maybe a little bit more selected so they could go to that camp draft line if they had to yeah well being being over like to the state so much and working in a lot of them podiatry centres and lameness centres over there, you get to see a lot of breeds and certain lines of horses coming through with issues. Right. And then, um, you know, like metallic cats and and, and your top stands like WR Cat Smart and, and a lot of the other hoddishes and all these other horses that you see... Um, they're commercially viable to breed to, but in in my way of thinking, I got to breed to a horse that um, that's a bit outside the square as far as uh, type wise. If they don't make make the cutting industry, we got a viable type we can sell somewhere else. Yeah. And the biggest thing for me, I need to practice what I preach, and I need to be breeding sound horses. Yeah. And so, um, selected like obviously started out with the Darwin Docks and Broodmare, and then went got a couple of nice Argyles, and we were in the Lethal Lena Syndicate, so I got a couple of nice Lethal mares, and then when you get a f- bit of a Broodmare baseline, then you got to look for the stains where you, what you want. And so, in the early days, we invested in breeding quite a few to. Pete Schumacher's horse, um, Racketeer Cat. Oh, yeah. The reason why is because he's obviously a highbrow cat horse, but he was out of a little peppy, peppy sand bred mare, and yeah. I really believe in them peppy sand on the bottom side because they're great cow horses, and right. they're obviously sound horses and yep. well-built. And, and so the same thing with the lethal, because he was out of a peppy sand mare. Yeah. And then Caddy Hawk, when I first seen him, he was the year of Metallic Cat and Third Cut, and so he was probably the third horse in line to them. But he was very, a very um, uh, cowy horse. He's what we call a pure horse. He doesn't need to, he doesn't cheat or nothing. Right. And he stayed sounder than the two other horses. He was still showing in his nine-year-old year where Metallic Cat finished in his five-year-old and Third Cut and finished in his six-year-old right. year. Um, and he had a lot a lot of showing. He was very sound. He was kind of probably the best-built highbrow cat horse I've seen. Right, yeah. Um, and then, so that's something that you could bring back home here. And he was a big horse, like over, like nearly 15 too. So that's something you can really? bring home here and be commercial, just not for cutters, but for drafters. And... Um, He's, he moves nice and he carries himself in a good forward motion. And and then in what's-name's, Phil Rapp's horse is the same. So he's still showing 
he's out of a, one of the best mares in the world. She yeah. earned 830000 and Definitely. He's nearly earned 500000 himself. And he's and he's still sound and showing, and he's a seven year old. Yeah. So I mean, them things count. So. Yeah. And then when you see a lot of the other stallions, a lot of their I know they breed a lot of horses, but when you see a lot of them in the vet clinics. Yeah. You um just starting to steer clear of that, and not saying they're not good horses, but. Yeah. It's just another issue that you don't need to be dealing with. Yeah, well, horses in Australia are expensive enough, so yeah. <laughs> the less yeah. issues, the better, I guess. Yeah. 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 Oh, well, that's a really good point. So, you yeah, also stood a stallion that um, for a number of years, he only, well, he only died oh, a year, a couple of years ago. Yeah, a year um, or so ago, yeah. Yeah, Mio Lethal Style. Tell us a bit about him. Well, I start. we got him as a yearling, and um, Pam Drew was good enough to... Because we were obviously in Lethal Syndicate, and then yeah. um, when we got out of the syndicate, still wanted to stay breeding a few with that line, and um, he was out of a a merely merely pep mare, so um, which was um, a stallion that um, Phil Webb brought out years ago. So he was a peppy sand horse out of a out of a smart little Lena mare. Uh-huh. Where lethal was the other way around, so he was a double cross, yeah, and he was exceptional type and and as a two year old and early three year old he was um probably the best thing I've ever started and then Sean come out and done some schools, and he worked him and and said you know it was one of the best colts he ever got on at that age, and then just before the futurity, I went to a pre work and he um Knuckled over in the front end and tore his um, joint capsule in his past and he was never sound after that, so we struggled with that. Yeah, right. Got to show him once or twice and got some pretty, you know, he never won any money, but he just, he never was 100% sound. Yeah. And, um, but, you know, there's a couple of times I did show him, he got some great shots of him and he done some pretty wicked stuff, but, yeah, and it was just a bit of a, just a bit of a bummer. We lost him. Had a, he had a surgery done on his. We're trying to do a surgery on that joint because he got really lame and he had complications after the surgery and we lost him. But um, got some nice foals by him and yeah, got some semen stored away. So we've even though he's gone, we've bred a few mares again this year. Right, right. I got a really nice three-year-old, really nice three-year-old uh, by him. Yeah, and. Um, but um, yeah, he was um, he was just a nice horse to have around, and yeah. it was just one of them things what happens. And yeah, yeah, yeah. So moving on a bit, but you're a professional farrier by day, and then professional cutting trainer by night. How do you balance that? Do, do you sleep? <laughs> Not very much. Um, probably starting to slow down a bit now. I've only got a couple of clients. Got two really good clients. Yeah. Um, they have a couple of horses in work all the time with us but um and you know do a lot of lessons and a lot of people come and we help out and chris and i really like you know having people around and yeah and um helping out and sort of do a lot more with the with the kids and done that ishy thing this year and found that was i enjoyed that and yeah and um years ago was about winning everything and but now it's more about just enjoy training the horses and um haven't been that competitive shown the last couple of years but that comes down to horsepower because we get to train a few and sell them on yeah and that's what we're about is we can train a few and sell them on and yeah and um chris does a great job of preparing them and sell, getting them sold and definitely so we've got some nice aged horses people are showing out there and even though we don't get to you know, final on the big aged events, we're getting a product out there and, yeah, you know, got people kind of ringing up, you know, most of the time seeing what we got and, yeah, so which is good and, and, um, so I just think that if you can do that and survive yeah, this yeah. day and age, yeah, and um, you're doing good, but, you know, it's good to, it's good to win, yeah, but it's, um, you know, we've got to survive and, you know, when you're breeding between six and nine foals each year and, Selling summer's wieners and yearlings and summer's show horses, we 
you just got to let the better ones go sometimes and yeah and survive the industry you know yeah so just run us through a day in the life of um of your day <laughs> well we usually um we get we get up at four and get away get away from the house at um uh four thirty and be in the valley down here and usually by half past six we're usually under the first lot of horses at one of the farms so there's three farms with Godolphin, Sedgino and Sledmere and and then we've got a couple of other little farms who look after Chatsworth and um and then I go troubleshooting on some of the like Yarraman and Valley's End and Vinery and that helping other farriers out and then usually about nine o'clock on a Monday and a Wednesday I head to the lameness centre at Musselbrook and right. and me and Joe Holt, the vet there do performance horse lamenesses all day on both days and then usually on the way out of the valley um we can do some calls on farms and then Tuesdays and Thursdays we do all farm stuff that said you know and sled me you've got folds and yearlings and broodmares to look after yeah and then most afternoons you get home about half five Chris and the girls will have the horses saddled on on the walker yeah and then um we'll work them um every evening and usually finish about half past nine get inside by quarter to ten have have a bit of dinner and then do it all again and then Fridays I don't normally come down the valley so we'll get up at six and feed up and um, breeding season Chris will get a vet and ready and then we'll try and get everything work before the vet comes so we'll do Friday morning we'll work it and then I'll shoe after I've got horses coming into the shop at home Right. We'll shoe after lunch, and then Saturday, Sunday's the same. Yeah. Um. Usually work, work cattle Friday, Saturday, Sundays, and and then we work the flag Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday if we got to. And um. So yeah, that's a that's about it. And if we have got a show show thrown in there, we we mm. fit that in as well. But um. Yeah, she's full on. Yeah. yeah. Well, I know you mentioned. Chris a number of times here, but how big a part does she play in this all? Well, she's probably the biggest cog in the the whole deal because she's coordinating coordinating the farm stuff. She does all the breeding and and then she um, gets all the horses organised and plus she runs some outside mares there in the breeding season for right. clients. Yep. And there's some of them clients' horses stay there. Um, all year round so then we've got to deal with the yearlings and if we've got to sale prep their yearlings or whatever but yeah they, there's a couple of clients been there oh, for over 10 years with wow. their mares so you know and then she does a lot of ET work with them so yeah we've got reset mares and some of the mares don't carry obviously so we flush them and and she's got to deal with the ET mares and foals and yearlings so she's got a full it's full time it's full time for her and plus the show horses and and you know if she's not vetting in the off season it's getting all the yearlings prepped for sales or whatever we're doing but no it's a full-time job and she has a full-time girl there helping us so it's full on crazy so if you could go back in time would you still do the same thing yeah if i went back and if I went back in time, I probably wouldn't change things. The only thing I probably would change, if I'd done it again, I probably wouldn't go, wouldn't have went pro, or would have stayed a non-pro. All right. Yep. Um, but at the time when I went pro, uh, Chris was, Chris, Chris was pretty sick, and I needed help, and the yep. only way he could afford to help was take some outside horses. Yeah. But I mean, I don't dislike being pro, but it probably would have been a good fit to stay as a non-pro and still train a few of our own out and sell some horses but we've got some really good cl- clients so yeah yeah there's this for and against well it's very hard no matter who it is to be competitive when you've got two professions yeah and that used to that used to get me once but i've come to the realization that a lot of them pro trainers are not out shoeing horses either like you know yep. they can just concentrate on their showing but it, it, you know, the beauty of being having two jobs is that there's no pressure there to, you know, make a living 100% out of 
having outside horses. So yeah, it, I know what sort of pressure them fellas what just train horses would be under, Definitely. especially in hard times and with drought and the way things are at the moment. I you know be a it wasn't wouldn't be a good feeling. No, it's definitely hats off to them at the moment. Yeah. I don't know how they're doing it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, um, yeah, no, people people think it's a, it's an easy deal, you know, when they go see somebody, oh, he won the Futurity, he won this, he's so lucky, there's no luck. And, yeah. You know, the harder they work, the more luck they make for themselves and hats off to them, you know. Yeah, well, I guess the horse training business can sometimes from the outside be looked as a fairly glamorous um, industry, but it, it's a it's a hard grind, isn't it? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, everybody puts in the same amount of effort. So, you know, what you're doing at home and there's the afternoons you think I'm stuff, everybody's in the same boat. Yeah. But even if you do it 110%, it still doesn't guarantee you success. That's the reality of it. Yeah. Um, but when you get knocked down, you just got to get up and go again. Yeah. And everybody has a turn. I remember... Back in, back in the 2000, end of 2009, 10, around that era, yeah. um, I was lucky enough to win a Futurity and yeah. place and run second in the Open Futurity. You couldn't do nothing wrong. Right. Um, everything just fell into place. And then, then you go, you sort of end up in no man's land for a long time because you haven't got the horsepower or you've got this or you've got other things in life happening. And yeah. So you, when you have them golden periods, you've got to embrace it. And yep. then when you're in the dark, cloudy times, you just got to put your head down and go harder, you know? Yeah, so it's but, pretty mentally taxing a bit. That. Yeah, I mean, obviously that's the biggest part of it because obviously when you've been doing it a long time, you can train a horse because it's, you I mean, you had the runs on the board before, but, um, you know, you got to fight your own demons a lot of the time. Yeah. When you're showing, so... How do you deal with that? Well, it used to really get to me once, but the last last couple of years since Chris and I have had the grandkids and, you know, there's, there's just a bit more important things in yeah, life and definitely. I'm just starting to find things are starting to turn around. The horses are actually coming better and the state of mind's a bit better at showing and um, you used to get all wound up about not doing good. Now it's, you know, haven't... It's not that you don't care. It's just to, that I think that sometimes that you, you know, you sort of lost the cutting before you even went in there because the pressure's that great, you know. Right. But now because it's a bit more enjoyable and there's other things what you know, grandkids and in life in general's changed a bit that you, you can see it it's starting to turn. You know, horses yep. are going better and and I just think now that's the main thing. If I can go out there and show me horses and ride out and your peers saying, gee, that's a, that mare's going good, You've, you know, it looks really good. I think at the end of the day, yeah, if you keep going like that, that the win will come, you know what I mean, when it all falls into place. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So, you know, if the other trainers are, people are saying, gee, your horses look good and you showed well, well, it's only time you keep fronting up that you'll post a check. Definitely. Mm. So... What would you think makes the difference between the t really top trainers? Why are they so good at the top of their level? Well, I can see likes of Aaron and Todd and them sort of fellas and why they, they, they've got like the top end of the market as far as horses. Right. Um, that's, all, that's all they do as far as their job. Yeah. And, and they're that finely tuned themselves i mean they've done that much showing mm. you know they can you know when they make them little mistakes um you know it's nothing to them they can bounce back from it yeah and you know like the blokes like aaron and todd they they fight their demons but you know when they're showing quite a few horses at a show they can have a couple of miss misfires and they've still got a few more to show where you know blokes like myself and other trainers have got one or two horses. Yeah. You just haven't, you know, you miss out on them and you, you're sort of sitting in the stands, you know. Yeah, okay. Don't, yeah. Have, don't have that security. Yeah, when, you, when you're showing four or five in each aged event, it just makes, you got a bit of a buffer zone there, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but they, I mean, obviously they're, 
they are good at their job too. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's good. Well, Link, thanks very much for coming in today. Uh, we've really appreciated your story and and really enjoyed catching up with you. And um, we wish you all the best for the rest of the year and and all everything that's to come. Yeah, well, thanks for having me. And it's been good to have a chat and somebody get some inspiration out of it. Oh, I'm sure they go, will. Go hard. <laughs> right, mate. Thank you very much. All right, see you, mate. Oh, well, guys, that's interview done with our cinch-sponsored writer, Link Bowman. Thank you very much, Link, once again. I really enjoyed sitting down with you, mate. It's always good. Uh, My three little takeaways for today. Number one, well, obviously, look after your feet. As we all know, competition is so damn competitive these days. And like Link said, it's those little one percenters that make the difference. So... Be sure to get a proper farrier and look after those horses' feet. I've always been told, never try and find a cheap farrier or a cheap brain surgeon, so I can definitely relate to that. My second little takeaway from today's episode was, look here first in Australia. I know everyone always talks about being abroad, having it so much better over there and there's bigger money and better trainers, but Link really brought us back down to earth and showed, well, and told us that the horseman here in Australia is good as anyone and still get up the same way that everyone else does. So I thought that was really cool and definitely take that into account. My third and final takeaway for today was hard work pays off. Link really is a super worker. He'll get up early mornings, be down shoeing horses in the Hunter Valley by 6 o'clock and then back home riding till 10 o'clock. If that's not hard work, I don't know what is. So hats off to Link. Well, guys, a big shout out to Cinch Australia for sponsoring this episode. Really glad to have you guys on board. And if you guys want to look as good as Link does out in the show ring, well, be sure to head over to Cinch Australia's website at www.mavericksholesale.com.au and check out all their latest gear as winners do wear Cinch. Okay, guys, well, that's going to do it for this week's show. We hope you really enjoyed it. Be sure to check us out on Facebook or Instagram at 90 or nothing podcast show. And definitely contact us. We'd love to hear from you. Leave us a comment. Tell us your thoughts. We'd love to hear. All right, guys, till next time. We'll see you then.